you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be at verse 30, starting today through 46. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time that we can come together around your word. I pray that as we look at maybe one of the most difficult texts in Scripture regarding your life, one of the most difficult moments, certainly, in your life, that uh, as we examine it and as we think about it and as we look at it, that we would feel the proper affections that we're supposed to feel as we read it. Although this story and this text might be something we've heard before or perhaps never before, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would come and walk us through the narrative or the way that you intended for us to be walked through it and feel and be amazed and astounded at all the things that, that you want us to see in this verses. I pray for myself, God, that you would You'd give me clarity of mind and thought and help me by the power of the Spirit to um, preach your word faithfully and that we would all give you the glory. <coughs> I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as Jordan said, this is, this is one of the most kind of serious, somber texts uh, out of, I, I guess, this entire kind of last couple chapters where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane um, face-to-face with God the Father and asking some pretty astounding things. Uh, it, it's kind of a real shame, actually, that we can't take all nine weeks of sermons and put it all together and really just go through it all at once for nine straight hours um, I say that not just in, in, I say that kind of joking, because I know that would kill us all, but at the same time, actually very serious. Um, but because as we go section by section, verse by verse, Matthew is, is, is doing some things, and he's wanting us to remind us of some stuff, and as we keep going, everything's kind of building up, even from this verse, and continually. So it, it would be awesome for us to kind of sit there and just let all these things build, and, and the tension keep uh, mounting as we as we go to what's going to eventually happen in verse in chapter twenty seven, but just as a as a reminder, we've seen in the first sixteen verses there, where verse tw- verses one and two in ch- in chapter twenty six are our our main text that's going to lead us through this last little section. He finished teaching and he he tells us that in two days, you know, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. So that's that's the key text that Matthew wants us to remember as we continually go through this. Jesus has said, he's prophesied that he's going to die. And then you've got, again, on 3 and 5, verses 3 through 5, and on the other side, 14 through 16, kind of two bad examples on how to prepare for this Christ's death, this Messiah's death, and then held up in the middle as the prime example is Mary, how she worships instead of plot or uh, take some financial benefit. And then as you keep going, uh, in contrast of Judas betraying, you have 
the next couple sections of Passover and institution of the Lord's Supper where Judas is going to leave at some point during that and Jesus is going to do something new here where you have the Passover where they've celebrated this, this feast that has been happening for several hundreds of years, <clears throat> celebrating that God has delivered them physically out of slavery. And then right there at 26, something new starts. At verse 26, it says, now as, uh, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And so the disciples in that moment knew this is, this is something new. And in that moment, as he starts the Lord's Supper, as he, he's, as he begins it, reverberating in their heads. And as we're reading, Matthew is wanting us to see that there's 11 disciples that are asking, is it I, Lord, that is going to betray you? And then you have Judas saying, is it I, Rabbi? Where Judas is just comfortable with calling him teacher. Judas is just saying, I respect you. You seem to be a good guy. You do things. But for me, you're just going to be the teacher. But for the other 11, they say, you're going to be our Lord. The one that calls the shots, the king, the Messiah, the one who has sovereign rule and reign over us. And we even see that later on in verse 49, where whenever it's time for Judas to betray him, he comes up to him in verse 49 and says, Greetings, Rabbi. Still continuing with showing us that all that he is is just a good teacher to him. And then he kisses him on the cheek um, and betrays him. But as we're going through this, we see... That big looming question then, Matthew is wanting us all to ask, which one is he going to be for us? Lord or rabbi? Lord or rabbi? The one who calls the shots and gets everything? Or just some respected guy in our cultural Christianity? And then we see the answer or the how and the why and the what of that's The only way that's going to happen is in, is in verses 26 through 29 as Jesus begins and institutes the Lord's Supper. What we call good news. The gospel. He tells us because of his body being broken and his blood being shed, because of the good news of the cross, because of what he's going to do for us, that we do not have to earn salvation, but instead he's going to make a way. He's going to do it all. So how are we going to answer that looming question of Lord versus rabbi because of what he does for us? Now, the gospel is more than just Jesus's death. If we just stop there, that's it. It's also the resurrection, and so in this particular text, there's going to be a little hint of that as well. So we're going to get the, the full-orbed gospel in verse 32, you can see, but after I'm raised up. Now, that is just almost kind of passing. And surely the disciples, even here, as we see Peter's big denial, uh, they, they still likely don't get it. But Jesus is going to hint at that right there in verse 32 today and, and give us this full mindset of gospel. And so what we're seeing now, um, and Matthew is just doing, and, and especially in these last two chapters, it's just grabbing every single thing that we've kind of read and learned. And I know we're all like amazing readers and we remember it all. We've been, we've been in this for so long. We're, we're remembering every single detail of Matthew. And Matthew's starting to grab all those things and just slam them down into the text repeatedly. So we're, we're, we're making all the connections that he's wanting us to make. And that's what I'm hoping that we're going to be able to see today. Uh, so today, starting at verse 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem means city. Mount of Olives, though geographically, it's not far at all. All of them think country. All the writers are... And readers of this think that's, that's different than Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, we, it, for us, it would just be more like a hill. But the Mount of Olives is outside. It was a big 
olive grove with a bunch of olive trees. Uh, and that's where they were. They could oversee into Jerusalem. And so as they, they knew this, they're thinking, okay, this means retreat time. This means getting away from the, the big city and Jesus is going to retreat. In times of great angst and agony in Jesus' life, this was, this was the pattern. Retreat for prayer. And of course that means for us. In times of great angst and agony, we should be, just, just like Christ, retreat in for prayer. Now we're going we're to unpack that a little bit more. But we see he, they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So before we get to the idea of the Mount of Olives, I do want to highlight this one little thing. Uh, and it says, and when they had sung a hymn. What had happened is, in verses 26 through 29, is good gospel teaching had just happened, right? And then they sung a hymn. And I think that that's something for us to learn. Likely, it was the, as I said last week, the halel, which is, uh, just means praise. And one of the commentators said the way that this probably happened is that Jesus himself would sing some of the psalms, this is probably coming from Psalm uh, 116, 117, 118. And then the disciples themselves, as Jesus would sing it, would echo. Uh, their, they had one line, it was pretty easy, hallelujah, which just means praise be to God. So just a couple lines. I just want to read a couple lines uh, from this uh, hallel that Jesus sang. And remember, let's try to think of this. Matthew wrote this particular book maybe 20, 30 years after Jesus' death. So he's looking back and he's just got all the history of the church and all of Jesus' faithfulness and everything that he had said coming true, and he's writing back. And so just think as he has this great understanding of cross, resurrection, and everything. And even in that moment as he's thinking, oh, Jesus sang the Hallel. These are the words he's saying. Matthew, as he's writing, is, is, able, is able for us to understand all of it, the beauty, and we are too. What he would say, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. This cup of salvation is no doubt why Matthew is going to repeat these words cup because it has lots of intrinsic meaning. And then they would say, hallelujah, praise be to God. And then he would say, praise the Lord all the nations, extol him all peoples. For great is the steadfast love towards us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And then they would say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so looking through what he's about to go through, we can see that God is going to call all the nations to himself. He is worthy of all of this praise and that he is going to drink the cup and pour out the cup of salvation to all people. And so they sang this hymn together. Uh, Well, Christ sang it, and then they were singing hallelujah back. Uh, About singing, this is a side note. But I think this is important. Um, The Bible tells us, first and foremost, to come sing to the Lord. It tells us, come sing to the Lord. Whenever we sing, it doesn't say, um, connect with God through music. And if you don't feel like you're connecting, then just throw it out there, wait for that moment, and then do it. That's not what the Bible talks when it talks about music. It commands us, as followers, to Sing to the Lord. And so anytime that we're in, a, in the company of the church, corporately gathering, whether we feel it or not, the command from God is not to connect with God through music. Um, and if you don't feel it, then you're free to just stand there and do nothing. That's not at all what the Bible says. Instead, the Bible continually, and all the hymns, and as they write to us, are telling us to sing to the Lord because he's worthy. Whether we are connecting or not, whether we're feeling or not, we should be singing 
over and over and over to him because the command is primarily not about us, but instead the command is about God. Uh, We sing first and foremost not to feel something, but instead because God commands us to. Uh, Jordan and I were actually having a conversation about worship, corporate worship, just this past week. And we, we were, as we were talking, Jordan said something um, very profound, whether he realized it or not. Um, he said, uh, I think that whether we feel like it or not, that we should do it. And generally, whenever our actions are obedient to the Lord, our emotions follow anyway. And so we should, we should allow that. We shouldn't just say, well, I don't feel it, so I'm not going to do it. Instead, because God commands it, we should do it and then generally let our emotions catch up to our actions. That's likely the way that the Lord is wanting us to sing to him. That's a side note, but I just thought that, uh, that we, should, we should think about it. We should join in and let our heart follow what we do. The, the goal is not connecting to God through music. The goal is proclaiming out all that he is um, gloriously due through song to worship him. Anyway, back to this. So they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said, now this is, this is something that we should all notice. Let's go ahead and put up number one, uh, verses 30 through 35. As I said, as we're going through this, the outlines that we have are generally going to be more historic outlines because this is passion narrative. So the outlines are going to be what happened, not you should do this. However, I'm trying to, as we go through this, show you some things uh, that you can make application with. So in verses 30 through 35, we had the the prediction of abandonment, and a little hint at the coming mission. A little hint at uh, chapter 28. Matthew is priming the pump for 28. Like everything is pushing us to Matthew 28. And we know Matthew 28, the great, com- command, or the great commission, where he tells us in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So, but he's going to prime the pump a little bit. So when we get to it, our hearts should just be exploding towards, this is what he's been driving at. This is what he finally wants us to know. So here we are, uh, the prediction of abandonment and the hint at coming mission. Now, we just saw in the last little sections of Judas going out and betraying. But here, Jesus is actually going to look at him and say, everybody is going to. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Now, we pick on Peter quite often, but Jesus is going to tell them that you're all going to fall away. And if you look at 56, if you just maybe turn the page, it says at the very end of verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. So the abandonment here is not primarily just Peter. Everybody is going to follow, fall away here. And it says, because of me this night, you're all going to fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is a quote from Zechariah thirteen seven, where the idea is if you strike the shepherd and take him down, all those who follow, all the sheep just don't know what to do. They're all standing there, you know, deer in the headlights or, you know, sheep in headlights, whatever you want to say, and just not sure what to do. And then they all scatter. They have no idea. This is exactly what's going to happen. Christ is going to be struck, and then they're all going to scatter. But notice this. This is this is such a little beautiful hint. And maybe it flies, we don't know, but maybe it flies right over the head of the disciples. But verse 32 is such a phenomenal good news verse, especially in light of what we just saw at the Lord's Supper. Death uh, is going to happen through his body and blood. And then he says right here, but after I'm raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. There is a lot in there. First we see, but after I am raised up. This is a prediction of his resurrection. I don't know how this hit the disciples, uh, but they certainly have just been told, you're all going to fall away. Every single one of you are going to leave. And I'm going to be raised up. Calvin says, he promises that he's still going to be their leader. Take them back to be his companions um, as they had as if they had never swerved from allegiance to him. He's just going to tell them, all of you are going to fall away. You're all going to desert me, but I'm still going to be your leader. I'm still going to bring you all back to me. After I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. I'm going to be raised up. Everything's going to be restored back. And even though I know you're all going to fall away, I'm still going to bring you back over here to me. So we see just an amazing teaching there, but we also see this, this Galilee. Before you go to Galilee. Now, the, uh, the perfect, excellent reader is going to notice this Galilee little phrase here because we're going to see it again. Uh, when he tells us, go before you to Galilee, I, I don't know how it hit the disciples, but they're thinking, Galilee? What are you talking about Galilee? Why are we going there? Well, let's just, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what Galilee, because I think right here in this particular says, when he says, I'm going to be raised up and I'm going to go before you to Galilee. In other words, I'm going to be waiting on you. And Galilee that particular city means something really, really special. And so they're all kind of thinking and waiting. And as you keep reading, we're going to see that Galilee specifically, if you look at Matthew 28, uh, verse 16. Well, yeah, go to verse 16. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So we know that right after that, he gives them the great commission. So as we see Galilee, I think Galilee literally means mission. So he says, after I'm raised up, mission is coming. This great opportunity for you to go then and do what I have been doing this entire time. Go preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so Galilee means something very important. Now, Matthew is also warning us, uh, as we've been reading the whole book of Matthew, Matthew is warning us to really think a lot about this word, this name of the city Galilee. Specifically, um, verse Chapter 2, verse 22 says this. But when he heard that, this is Joseph. When he heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So we know automatically, all the way back in chapter 2, Joseph, his father, hears that if I go anywhere over there, uh, my son might be be killed. So I'm going to retreat kind of far away over to this region of Galilee and get away. And we see in 313 uh, that as Jesus grew, uh, became a man, he was launched out into ministry right there at 313. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized. So Jesus launches out his public ministry in Galilee. And we know that as we read throughout the book of Matthew, over and over it's shown to us that his hometown, his home base, his center place, the way he, he kind of launches out and does ministry is primarily from Galilee. So another note about Galilee, not only does it mean mission, but it also is the home starting place for Jesus. So if we're asking then, a pattern for mission for us. We don't know how to get started. We don't know where to get started. How do I, but I hear you talking about mission likely week in and week out, hopefully, and I believe it, but I just don't know how to get started. Just do what Christ did. Jesus started right in his own home, right in his own hometown. Where do you need to start mission? How, if, you, if mission seems overwhelming to you, just do what Christ did. Start right there in your own home. 
your wife, your husband, your children, your roommate, whoever you live with, if you don't have anybody that you live with, your neighbor, right there where you are. That's the perfect place to start. I think this is, and you may be, you're over-spiritualizing this Galilee thing, perhaps. But I really think Matthew's wanting us to see mission started for them right where they got started. It started right in the very beginning, right there at home, and then it started spreading out. I think that's a good application for us whenever it's time for us to do mission, if it just seems overwhelming. I don't even know how to get started. There's like 16,000 people groups in the world, but they scare me. I don't even know how to get started. Start in your hometown. Jesus could have started the Great Commission. He could have given the Great Commission anywhere, literally. He could, have, he could have just gone anywhere, right? He could have done it in Miami, Florida, if he wanted, right? But instead, that would have been unlikely, right? But he decided to do it in Galilee. And so I think we should look at that and at least ask why. We should at least ask why, and there's a pattern for us, I think. So in verse 32, there's a ton. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, I am about to get everything started for mission over there. Don't fret. There's a lot of bad things that are about going to happen. But verse 32 is kind of lifted up as this amazing beacon of hope and light to the disciples who are all going to leave Jesus in these next moments. Peter, uh, he's got... uh, He's got a big mouth. There's just no way about it. Um, and we, we pick on Peter. We get mad at him. But we don't need to miss, before we get into Peter and we get all over him, uh, don't miss verse 31. You will all fall away. So the gospel writers have decided uh, it, by being carried out by the Holy Spirit as they wrote these, these particular Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospels. They decided as all the other 11 disciples turned their back, What we're going to do is we're going to write specifically about Peter. We're not going to write about the other ones. But that doesn't mean that the other ones didn't do the same thing, right? They all left. It's just that Peter's the one that gets recorded uh, of his leaving. So they all leave. And Peter, this is likely why, because Peter vehemently says, Peter answers him, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I mean, Peter, he's fiercely loyal. There's no question about it. He's going to chop a dude's ear off in just a second. So we know that, Jesus, that Peter loves Jesus very much. Uh, we know that this is the case, but we still know that this is going to be a broken promise. Um, he is a denier of Jesus. It's going to happen, no question. But still, Jesus has a plan for restoration for him. He's still going to be invited over to Galilee as well. And so Spurgeon says, as, he, as Peter says this, Spurgeon says, No doubt these words were spoken from his heart, but the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Peter must have been amazed the next morning as he discovered the deceitfulness and wickedness of his own heart as manifested in his triple denial of his Lord. Now, I read that not for us to be like, Dang, Peter, you stink. But instead always when we talk about these things is for it to kind of circle back into our own lives and think I should not think of myself too strong I should not think that I don't have a desperately wicked heart instead of trying to be strong in my own strength I need to be strong in the Lord I need to be weak so that the Lord is strong I think this that's one of the great applications we can make from this verse 34 Jesus is going to tell him uh, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me 
three times. Now, we're not going to do too much on this because Matthew is actually going to talk about it in 69 through 75, verses 69 through 75 in the same chapter. So we're going to come to it in the next probably two weeks. Um, So I don't want to deal with it too much, but we know that Peter denies him. And then it says in verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. There it is again. So even though we get on Peter's back and we say, I can't believe he would do this. I mean, how could he do this? We know that in verse 31, Jesus says, all of you going to fall away. And then in verse 35, everybody's going to fall away. So we can kind of get off Peter and get off of his back a little bit. All of them did it. All of them did it. Now, we move into verse 36. So that was, that was the first one, was the, uh, the prediction of abandonment that's coming, literally from all of his closest friends. Jesus is no doubt going to have to enter into these last moments completely alone. We have reached the last closing hours of Jesus' life. And what's for sure, this, this title, King Alone, is he is going to face this entire thing alone. Even his closest 11 friends now are going to, to leave him. And it says, then Jesus went with, with them to a place called Gethsemane. So that, that's still in the Mount of Olives, but they're walking into this particular garden. So you, they're entering into Gethsemane, and he's got his 11. And what he's going to do is he's going to take eight of them and sit them kind of right there at the front and say, I want y'all to stay here, uh, not just chill and, and, and play Sega, but like I want y'all to think and pray and hang out. That's likely what happened. And then he takes the inner three, Peter, James, and John, and goes a little further to the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, I'm sorry, to Gethsemane. And it says, and he went to them a place called Gethsemane. Now, I want to, the best I can, to set the stage of Gethsemane because this is the um, most gut-wrenching visual display of the humanity of Jesus in the entire Bible. There's nothing that I think highlights for us the sorrow and anguish and pain, physical and mental and, and emotional distress that Jesus has really uplifts the humanity of Jesus. Now, we believe Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. His humanity, his 100% manness, is going to be shown here. Um, Spurgeon, as he's talking about this particular text, says, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. In other words, take off your shoes. You are treading on very holy ground. The Son of Man is in deep anguish with his Father, begging for another way. That's humanity. I mean, he's begging for another way. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. So that gives me not a whole lot of hope right now. Um, this is a subject for prayerful, broken heart meditation more than for human language. D.A. Carson, the anguish in Gethsemane is not, likely to be pa- is not likely to be passed over. Three times Jesus prayed in deep emotional distress. He went to his death knowing that it was his father's will that he faced death completely alone as the sacrificial Passover lamb. As his death was unique, so also was his anguish. And our best response to it is hushed worship. Barclay, surely this is a passage that we must approach on our knees. So as we go into this particular set of verses, this is 
very holy ground that we are treading upon. So much so, we should remove our shoes, walk forward on our knees with our faces to the ground, and realize that we are entering into the most holy of holy conversations. And for some reason, God the Father and God the Son, through the power of the Spirit, has privileged writers to write for us to kind of peek in to this conversation that's going to happen. Now, there's an expanded version in John 17, which I don't have time for. But we know that this is, this is amazingly uh, anguish-filled conversation between the Father and the Son. So, the second one is this. There was a prediction of abandonment, and this is the prayer, when abandoned, and then great resolve given for mission. Jesus is going to receive some resolve. So this is the prayer when abandoned. The first one was the prediction of abandonment. And now this is the prayer when he's abandoned. So we see he walks into Gethsemane. So anytime now when you hear Gethsemane, I I pray that I've done a fraction of the respect due to this particular moment that we should have. It's just an intense, intense moment for Jesus. That's what Gethsemane means. Gethsemane uh, literally means oil press. And so Jesus is in the Garden of Olive Groves and the Mount of Olives. And he looks over and he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he tells eight of them to do that. Sit here while I go over and pray. And this sit doesn't mean uh, hang out. It literally means to be very attentive to everything that's going on. I want you to the best of your ability to participate with me in exactly what I'm doing. Don't forget verse 31. You're all going to fall away. You're all going to fall away. And then just a few sentences later, Jesus, though he knows they're all going to fall away, displays his deep need for them. In this moment, he is going through the hardest point of his life, and all he wants is just some slight semblance of solace from his followers. This is going to be the hardest thing I'm ever going to face. I just need some of you to pray for me. And we're going to see that none of them are going to be faithful in this. So he tells them to sit. And this means to be attentive. Is, I, I deeply desire that you would listen to, he's saying, I deeply desire you to listen to what I'm requesting and participate in with what I'm doing. And then taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, uh, with him, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So in Matthew chapter 17, We see the inner three going with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. And in Matthew chapter 26, we see the inner three going with him to the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane. A little bit of a contrast for sure, uh, where the deity is magnified on the Mount of Olives. I mean, I'm sorry, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The humanity is magnified here in the Mount of Olives. And so he asks these particular three to also, uh, as they go a little bit further, to pray, and you can see that the language that he 's going to use is uh, it 's hard to wrap our minds around just how troubled and sorrowful he is. It says in verse thirty seven and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Um, this is the deepest level of sorrow and trouble that you can experience as a human. Uh, Spurgeon says the sorrow i 'm going to say it, and hopefully we can get it i 'll explain what I think it means the sorrow of his soul was the very soul of his sorrow. In other words, he was sorrowful that he was sorrowful. He's the son of God. 
been, this is what he sent for, was to be willing to be obedient all the way to the point of death. And he knows that he wants to make his father happy. He wants to make his father proud. God the Father from eternity past has said, I'm sending you, son, to go be obedient to the cross all the way. And he wants to be the joyful son that is being obedient all the way to the point of death. But in his humanity, he's having a point where he's saying right here, this is scary. The full wrath of God is going to come upon me. The idea of that is, is troubling me and the son, who's always been 100% obedient to the father and loving, he's not sinning here, but he's troubled and he's scared about doing it. And that's bothering him. It's bothering him that he's not being as obedient and he's not sinning here as he wants to be. So when Spurgeon says the sorrow of his soul was the very soul of his sorrow, he's sorrowful that he's sorrowful. Because he knows this is what he's supposed to do. And he's supposed to be willing to do this all the way. But in this moment, there's going to be three particular little prayers where he's going to say, God, is there another way? Um, This is the humanity like we've never seen of Jesus. I want to highlight with you just a couple things that we're going to see. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, now he's asked them to be with him. There's, 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 this isn't going to be on the, on the screen, but this, there's some things I want you to hot be, be noticing about his humanity. Number one, his humanity is highlighted because he's very self, sorrowful and troubled. The next one is that he needs human companionship in this hard time. He needs his 11 disciples to give some level of solace to him. It's so hard for him. He, he has nowhere else to reach. And so he's saying, I just need for you to pray for me. And if you pray for me, maybe I'll be strengthened. That's showing his humanity. Here, he literally falls down on the ground. He's going to literally fall on his face. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. He's very sorrowful, likely crying, likely crying. And then in his humanity, another highlight of his humanity, is he's going to ask that if, if possible, if morally possible, and for the God to still remain consistent with himself, he's asking for this to be removed. One commentator likened this back to the same temptation with Satan. That this temptation was maybe even as great. So he is experiencing extreme sorrow and temptation. And notice this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. Here's one part of his Humanity also. He says, my father. Now, if you remember back when we were doing the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, and when you pray, pray like this, our father who art in heaven. And so you have this this amazing juxtaposition of our Father, the eminence, the closeness, the amazing deep closeness of being able to call Father who art in heaven and this vast, transcendent, great, huge, sovereign, bigger than we could ever conceive God. And those first little lines of Matthew 6, 9 of the great prayer, we have this huge God, but also he's told him to call him our Father. Now we read my, our Father and that's no big deal because we always say when we pray, Father, but this is brand new to them. They never called him Father. They only called him Adonai. It just means Lord. 
they had the name of God, Yahweh, which means Lord, but they didn't even say that. They always addressed God as Lord. And Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 tells them, when you talk to God, you are so close to him, you can literally call him Abba, Father. This is foreign to the Israel mind. And here, Jesus, in this time, trembling, sorrowful, troubled, goes to him and doesn't say Adonai, doesn't say Yahweh, but says Abba. I mean, just lifting up even more his deep anguish, but also his humanity. He is in deep distress and calls him his dad, father. This isn't disrespectful. This is great respect, but still calling him father. If it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. We, we have to stop before we get to 39b, the nevertheless, which is a massive shift. We need to go over here to this first half and let all of this kind of sink in in what he's saying. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, cup. Certainly in the background of the word cup is the previous section where Jesus is talking about the cup is representing his blood. He's going to take away the sins of the world. Certainly there's that. But there's also all the Old Testament where cup can also mean kind of destiny, what you're supposed to do. But also in the background of the Old Testament, cup means wrath of God. Verses like Psalm 75, 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it on all the wicked of the earth and shall drain it down to its dregs. And so this cup When Jesus says, can this cup be taken from me if it's possible? This is his destiny that he's supposed to live and die um, as the son of God, but also all the wrath of God. And Jesus is certainly aware. This is why he's sorrowful and troubled because he knows very short future, all the wrath of God, the full wrath of anger towards all the sin in the world is about to be poured onto him. And he says, is it possible that this cup could not come to me? Is it possible that it could pass? Jesus is literally saying, just as speaking as vulnerable as we have ever heard him speak, God, I'm asking for another way. I don't want to die. If there's another way for you to be morally consistent with who you are in this moment, I'm wanting there to be another way. This is simply staggering. This is simply staggering. That the humanity of Jesus, just as staggering as the Mount of Transfiguration, where he was so bright shining, they saw the deity of God and they literally didn't even know what to do. In this moment, the disciples, or at least part of there, the humanity of Jesus is being lifted up. Jesus is asking for an alternative plan. He wants there to be another thing to be the sin-bearing sufferer in order for the Father's redemptive purposes to happen. He is in full-fledged agony right here. And this is going to happen three times. We're going to see that it's going to happen again in verse 42, again for the second time, and then the third time, saying the same words. So we know that there's a pattern here where he's going to ask for something else, and then you have the second part. And what I want to do is highlight... there's going to be three separate times that he's going to do this. I don't think that's coincidence. We're coming to it. But I want to to insert ourselves into the moment of the second time. I want to insert ourselves into the moment of the second time because we know that as he said this, 
the same words were, were spoken. Verse 42, for the second time he went and prayed, my father, unless this cannot, um, if this can pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And then verse 44, he went a third time saying the same words again. So in that little, that little time where I can't take it, God, if there's another way, I'm, I'm, I'm such in agony and sorrow and pain. I can, I can picture Jesus as he's saying this, trembling and screaming. His language is probably to the point of convulsion and screaming and weeping and agony, fierce trembling, extreme sorrow as he's saying it. You know, whenever you're trying to talk and you're crying so hard, you literally can't even talk. This is probably how he's speaking. He's feeling such deep, deep tension. Um, I want to insert ourselves there into the second time because Luke 22 has something amazing that happens in the second time that, that Jesus goes to the Father. In Luke chapter 22, the Father looks down, the loving Father looks down on the horrific bereavement that Jesus is feeling where he's literally trembling, shaking and convulsing and screaming out and praying. And in Luke chapter 22, at verse 43, we see the Father, God, intervene and act on Jesus' behalf to give him some semblance of calming. Look what it says in verse 43. This is at the second one. And there appearing to him, an angel from heaven came, strengthening. This is, this is gloriously beautiful. That the Father, the loving Father, sees Christ with these convulsions of agony. As it says in verse 44, actually, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. He was literally in such deep, convulsing agony that as he sweat, there was such blood accumulating in his pores that he started sweating drops of blood. Spurgeon says, as talking about the tension upon his whole frame became so great that his life seemed oozing away through every pore of his body. He was sweating drops of blood. I imagine that it was screaming. Hebrews 9, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 5 actually gives us one little snippet of this. Hebrews chapter 5 says in verse 7, this is after Jesus has died, the writer's looking back at how Jesus would pray. And chapter 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, that's when Jesus was um, on earth before his death, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, here it is, with loud cries and tears to God who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So we know when Jesus prayed here that there was loud cries and tears. Jesus is literally convulsing and screaming, not in some kind of irreverent way, but in the most reverent way. You've you got to get this full picture of him sobbing and screaming and sweating and agony and trouble. And he's just going on. I can't do this, God, because he understands maybe like we have never understood the full wrath that is about to come to him. And God comes and sends an angel to give him some semblance of covering, some semblance of comfort. And then that little shift right there in 39, which happens all three times at the very end. Nevertheless, the resolve, this beautiful resolve that Christ feels from the Lord, God the Father, no doubt, for carrying out the full mission of God. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We've never felt this kind of trouble and agony and despair. We've never come close to it. And whenever I do 
feel fractions of fractions of it. I am such a baby. I am not submissive unto the will of the Father, probably. I mean, I just run like a coward. And likely you can feel that. And in the greatest sorrow, Jesus, with unbelievable resolve, sweating blood and convulsing and screaming and crying, says, in his highest point of humanity, nevertheless, there is no other way. Not what I want, but what you want. Three times this happens. And with great resolve, a triumph happens. And he determines he will be the sacrifice for sin. And so if we're looking at that, three different times he perseveres through prayer, looking for some semblance of an application that we should definitely, like this, persevere in prayer. And that we would have God come and move our spirits to be able to say, and our will to be adjusted, where we can say, not my will, God, but yours. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Verse 40, and each time, he has the same kind of uh, sad discovery after he has this amazing time in prayer, this horrific time in prayer, as he walks out. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour. One hour is what he had, Jesus had just gone through. To give us some idea of how long the convulsions and screams and agony and desperate sorrow, trouble and prayer just happened for the first time. It was a full hour of that. <laughs> that's perseverance in prayer. No question that's perseverance. And he tells them in verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, when we read that, we can kind of just speed by it. He tells them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What do you mean by temptation, Jesus? Do you mean temptation to sleep? Is that what he's speaking of here? I don't want you to be tempted to sleep, Peter, James, and John. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Um, But notice what he says after that. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This word flesh in the Greek is sarks, and it doesn't just mean skin. It means our sinful human nature, our sinful human nature. And so this is pretty astounding. Um, D.A. Carson points this out, and this is, I think, over-the-top amazing. So no doubt in the worst moment of Christ's life, I think, outside of the cross itself. Feeling some of the worst agony ever, after the first time of realizing that his disciples aren't following him, he walks out, and he's not just kind of throwing out some friendly advice. D.A. Carson says that he has such love for his disciples that he actually takes this time to do some teaching for them. It's likely that Jesus is teaching here in his worst hour of his life. He's thinking of the trials of his friends that they're being tempted to do something. And he does a moment of teaching where he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Literally meaning our humanity 
and our sinful nature is going to war against our spiritual eagerness. Our spiritual eagerness is often going to be accompanied with carnal weakness. And so you need to be careful. He's, he's teaching them, not in this moment, but for the rest of their lives, to not let the carnal weakness overtake the spiritual eagerness. Because the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he says that you need to watch and pray, not just in this moment, but for your entire life. And then he goes back again for the second time. So here, as we're looking at prayers, there's some things I want you to see of how we can persevere in prayer. There's some things that God, he does to show us how we can persevere in prayer. He addresses God as Father, showing a deep intimacy that he has with God. Therefore, we will persevere in prayer when we pursue that deep knowledge of God as Father. Not just Lord, but Father. He also, in verse 39... B, resolves not as I will, but as you will. A a way to persevere in prayer is to continually throw our will upon the will of God's. He's persistent in prayer. A way that we can be as persistent is to see that he goes three times, and the first time is for at least an hour. So we know that we, we should be persistent in our prayer. He prays in faith. We know that he prays in faith and waits for an answer because as Hebrews chapter five, verse seven said to us that I read before, He labored in prayer with much screaming and agony. And it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. He knew that when he went to the Lord and when he prayed, that he would be heard. He had faith that God hears. And we should definitely pray in faith that we're going to be heard because we're his children And he also recognized that his flesh and indeed our flesh is weak. So when we persevere in prayer, it's it's an acknowledgement that we don't have the strength. You will never have the strength. You have to throw yourself completely upon the mercy of God and say, I never have the strength. Therefore, God, in every situation, great or small, I throw myself upon your mercy and say, fill me with your strength. When we try to white-knuckle it and do it in our strength, we rob God of his glory if we do it on our own. An acknowledgement that we don't have the strength and for him to fill us with strength is what he's after. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this section about prayer, says prayer is the best practical remedy that we can use in time of trouble. I like that because he uses the word remedy. Prayer is the best practical remedy that we can use in time of trouble. Jesus is experiencing great distress here, great sorrow. And when he's doing that, prayer produced in him great earnestness to fulfill God's mission. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what happened when Jesus persevered in prayer? I think this is awesome. I think this is just crazy awesome. Uh, Carson sees a great parallel. I think I've mentioned this, but the book of Matthew is kind of written to kind of in some ways mimic Genesis here and there. This is what he says. This is so awesome. In the first garden, Adam and Eve said, not your will, God, but mine, and changed paradise into a desert. Now, in this garden, Jesus says, not my will, but yours, and brings anguish to Jesus who prayed it, but then transformed the desert into the kingdom. 
He went from paradise to desert, back to paradise, the kingdom. Because the first parents, Adam and Eve said, not your will, God, but mine. But then the second Adam says, not my will, but yours. Persistence in prayer ushered in paradise and the kingdom for us. Oh, man, that's just incredible. Oh, that's so good. I thought it was awesome. But anyway, all right, so here we go. Um, he says, not, what I, not, our will, not my will, but yours be done. He came again, verse 43, and found them doing it a second time because their eyes were heavy. They were just so tired. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. The third time. Now, I don't think that there's any accident here that we see the third time. Matthew, I think, is doing something intentionally. Just as Jesus has persevered three times in the garden to submit himself to the will of the Father, that we know that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. It just told us that in the end of verse 34, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then here he perseveres three times. Now, I know there's a danger. Uh, I was listening to Ask Anything Saturday just this past week with Al Mohler, and he said, somebody asked about the number 40, and he's like, you need to be a little careful throwing a whole lot of stuff about numbers. You can't get into numberology, if that's a word. Uh, numbers, you, you, can get yourself, you can get yourself dangerous if you're always just trying to make, you know, the Bible like this math book, which turns into logarithms, and you have these numbers, and you're like, ah, I know, that, you know, the end times now. I'm Harold Camping or whatever. But here in this particular thing, I think that Matthew is really wanting us to see something. Without a doubt, I think he's wanting us to see something. He's pushing them as this third time to get them to see verse 32. Specifically, the first uh, six words. But after I am raised up. After I am raised up. He's hinting a little bit. Matthew's hinting. Again, Matthew's taking all of these chapters that he's been doing. And he's just slamming down repeatedly in 26 and 27. Building up our anticipation of what's going to happen. So we have... Peter, who's going to deny three times. We have Jesus persevering here in the garden three particular times. And if we look back in Matthew chapter 20, whenever Matthew was speaking of Jonah, he said that there's the sign of Jonah, just as Jonah was cast into, let let me read it to you. Um, Verse 39, and even adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah, well, here it was, was three days and three nights in the belly of of the great fish. Matthew is wanting us to remember three, three. I I really believe this. And then it says, verse 41, uh, verse 40b, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so we know that the sign of Jonah is, as he spent three days in the grave, verse 32, but then after that he's going to be raised up. He's going to be raised up. Jesus will be in the grave on the third day, and then he will be raised up for our salvation. So as he's saying here, this third time Matthew's trying to hint towards us, there is an unbelievably glorious resolution coming. And I just gave you a little hint there at verse 32, and I gave you another hint over there at 1220. And it's, it's unbelievable. This Savior is going to come back from the dead. They're going to kill him. And he's going to be the payment. And then he's going to come back from the dead. And so we see here in verse 45. After the Lord has finally resolved, he's said, nevertheless, not my will but yours. 
We're going to see it put into action here. Verse 45, it says, Then he came to the disciples and said, said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. You've tried to sleep. No more sleeping. It's over. It's not going to happen anymore. The disciples have uh, not prayed. They've not gotten a whole lot of strength, and they've not prayed for Christ to be strengthened fully, but Christ has had to face this alone, and he has the strength. And in the distance, there he sees the glow of torches coming. In the distance, through the trees, we can hear the whispers of the coming people ready to take him away. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, look at this, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And in those moments, the glow of the torches are coming. The whispers through the trees are happening. And Jesus is saying, nevertheless, not, not my will, but yours. I am going to be the Messiah that is going to take the road of suffering. I am going to be the Messiah that's going to fulfill the prophecy. I am going to be the Messiah that's going to drink the full cup of the wrath of God. He is going to be the Messiah prophesied in Matthew 121 and again in Matthew 26, 28 that he is going to go and die for, the, for the, his people and save his people from their sins. Spurgeon says, Jesus went forward divinely strengthened to meet the terrible trials that awaited him so he could fully accomplish the redemption of his chosen people. The betrayers at hand, here comes Judas and here comes Jesus, resolved more than ever to obey the will of the Father and be the one who is going to redeem his people. That Savior is worthy of our worship right now. He went through the toughest trial ever, Resolved and came out gloriously resolved to say, I'm going to go now. The torches are coming, the people are coming, and I'm going to go to the cross. That's a great Savior to worship. A glorious Savior to stand and proclaim out just how wonderful He is. We sing not because we need an emotional affection, connection to God. Instead, we sing because we're commanded and we sing because he's gloriously due our worship. So let's stand and sing out to God, because he is worthy of our worship. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come. We thank you for this moment that we can look into what is no doubt the most difficult moments in your life outside of the cross, getting a privilege to peer into the deep anguish that you felt in Gethsemane. And yet, we're so strengthened in our faith because you said, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I pray, God, that as we worship, we would sing out, no doubt, like the disciples did in verse 30. They hadn't been told they were going to fall away. They had to just been so full with great hope. And they scream out, Hallelujah! As the Hallel was saying, I pray that we would sing like this this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.